Welcome to Countdown to Kickoff, part of Oregon College Game Day with Judah Newby and Neil Lomax. Presented by Frost Brewed Coors Light on 1029 and 750 The Game. Here we go, another week of college football. Welcome into Countdown to Kickoff. He's the College Football Hall of Famer, Neil Lomax. I'm Judah Newby. 503-417-7575. Beaver fan, how do you feel right about now? How do you feel right about now? First road win for Oregon State in over four years. And they do it in the same place they got their last road win. Boulder, Colorado. Folsom Field. A 28-point second-half deficit. Jake Luton comes in, throws for over 300, three touchdowns. The best moment of that young man's embattled career. And he leads the Beavs to the victory, shocking the fans in Boulder. What a moment, Neil Lomax. The Beavers win in overtime, 41-34. to That was an exciting second half. It's amazing. Ooh. It's amazing thing about momentum. It really is. I mean, we've seen it every week. We talk about every week, like last Washington State, Oregon, the first half there, and uh, different scenarios throughout, not just high school, college, the pros, but momentum. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to get, but when you lose it, it's hard to get it back. Right. So just ask Colorado that. I mean, it's all about Mojo. And I, Jordan Chukar. So, first of all, the kicker. <laughs> God bless you, man. You are going to be, you, you were going to walk back to Corvallis. Walk back if, if, they, if Oregon State would have lost that game in overtime. But what a comeback. I mean, un- incredible. My question is how come Jake Luton didn't play in the first half? Exactly. But anyway, congratulations, Beaver Nation. Man, what a game and broke the streak. That's right. unbelievable, man. It, 22 games without a win on the road, and there were some close calls along the way, and it's their first conference win since, check this, the Civil War right? when they beat Oregon in 2016. That was their last Pac-12 win. They go out there, they get it done today on the road, and the first play of the second half is a you know 75-yard Colorado touchdown to make it 31-3. to At that point, it would have been so easy for them to pack Pack it in, throw in the towel, right, and give up, right, Neil? Well, you, you would think so. And it's interesting how even Washington State did it last week as well. There's something about just the, the human nature of taking the – you kind of take your foot off the pedal. Right. Okay, we got a big lead. Let's be a little softer. But I looked at this as, I mean, the offense led by Jake Luton came in and absolutely – it was like seven on seven. It was a passing clinic. Some of the balls he was throwing, that, that kind of told me he didn't really miss a whole lot of practice. And he's had some injury issues, no question about that. But the way he was thrown, the timing uh, with Hodgkins and Hernandez, I mean, it was impressive to watch Oregon State throw the football the way they did. And Jamar Jefferson still got over 100 yards rushing, like 124 yards rushing, so they kept balancing with him. But you take away really two big running plays from Colorado. If I remember, I think Montez ran for a, a, a 30 or 40-yarder. You take away the 75-yarder. And they didn't really do a whole lot rushing the football, especially in the second half, where they needed to run the ball. So credit to Oregon State's defense for hanging in there. And you're right. This whole thing about not quitting, not giving up, it would have been so easy, especially coming off what they looked like against Cal at home, homecoming. So they spoiled their own homecoming, and they go to Boulder and spoil the Buffalo homecoming. Kind of interesting. That's amazing, man. And Arizona has homecoming tonight 
against the Oregon Ducks. So Got what does that really matter in college, right? Got to <laughs> spoil it, baby. Got to spoil it. Hey, credit to Jonathan Smith, who really needed a turnaround for his program this year in, in year one. This was him with Lewis Johnson after the game on Pac-12 Network. Well, Coach, what do you make of this scene? You get your first conference win of the season on the road in overtime. You know, just really happy for this group. You know, we've been talking about keep on fighting, keep on working, keep on believing. And it played out here today. I mean, we're down big. Keep on fighting, believing. These guys did. Came up with a win. Really happy for them. When you say you're down big, down 31-3 to be exact, and just explain to us what Jake Luton did as he came in really and sparked this offense. He did. He did. He gave us the spark. He knew you know, what he could do out there and what he couldn't. And uh, he played great. He gave us a huge spark. Defensively got some stops. Really happy for him. You've been talking about rebuilding this program and getting everybody to believe, remembering the seniors. What does a moment like this do for everything you've been talking about all season? Oh, it's huge. You know, obviously, to get the uh, result you're looking for and working for, so it's huge for our program, and we got to keep on going from here. Jonathan, congratulations. Thank you. Keep on working. Keep on fighting. Keep on believing. Sometimes words can ring hollow if you don't back them up, but that process was integral to the Beavers' 28-point second-half comeback, Neil. But, I mean, what was the biggest comeback that you had at Portland State or in the NFL? Do you remember? Uh, we, we, I do. It was against Tampa Bay, and it was 28 points. Wow. Uh, we were down um, 31-3. to And same scenario. We only scored a field goal. So, 28 points. We came back to score 34. Uh, they scored zero in the second half in an NFL game. Again, that, it is about momentum and the belief. And God bless Jonathan Smith and what – Every coach kind of says that. Every coach wants those 18, 19, 20-year-olds to believe that. But when the results don't get it all the time, I mean, you're losing every week. I mean, this is not just like two or three weeks here. This has been two or three years. And exactly what, and what happened last year to this football team with these same players, really, with Gary Anderson jumping ship. So it's not even the players giving up. You had coaches giving up. You're a head coach. So that you, you got to take that in consideration of what they've been doing and believe and believe. My question is again, Jake Luton, where, what, you just came in the seventh inning? Is right. that, is that you, had pitch, you had a pitch count? That was amazing to me how sharp he was. I mean, I was so impressed with uh, Timmy Hernandez, uh, Trevor Bradford, uh, and Isaiah Hodgkins. I mean, there's some key catches. They look like a total different team. And, and folks, I, I, I look at the quarterback, too. He was throwing, ma- making Jake Luton, talking about Jake, some absolute lasers that were – there were some 20-yard outs. I mean, some 30, 40-yard throws he had to make. And just the confidence. You can just sense the confidence. Like, where has this been? Well, it kind of reminded me, though, when they were playing Nevada Reno. Right. In this exact second half. Same kind of look. They had a chance to win that football game. Should have won the football game. Missed field goal. So that, that had a lot of look from week two when we went down to Nevada. Yeah, you could very well be talking about this Beaver team being a three-win team right now mm-hmm. if, uh, you know, Mr. Chukare <laughs> makes a field goal against Nevada. But you know what? The time and place, the Beavers won the game, so we don't have to talk about his missed extra point. As for Jake Luton, you're right, Neil. He was throwing dimes, especially the goal balls as well. You know, Over the outside shoulder of Isaiah Hodgins, who does not look like a you know a mediocre receiver. That guy, I think, is is someone that deserves more of the spotlight. Isaiah Hodgins can play. All those receivers were doing a great job, and you mix in, you know, Jamar Jefferson, right, at that tailback position, that halfback position, uh, and we don't talk enough about Oregon State because they've been losing. You know, that's that's our you know we're, we're pregame college football show, but uh, talking about the whole landscape of the Pac-12. I mean, I, we were talking about how great Utah is, and they're probably are the, the best team in the South. And I was saying USC's on a little rise, 
but Utah knocks them off, and then USC loses at home. So college football is amazing. The Pac-12 now, we'll see what shakes out. And then you got Washington barely hanging in there at Cal. I mean, it's 7-6. to six. And going to be a great game watching Washington State down at the farm, playing Stanford. But for Beaver Nation, it was so exciting. <laughs> they were rushing the field. like <laughs> it, it was crazy to watch that. But well-deserved, though. You know, for all those Beaver fans, you wanted to see that at home. But to beat someone on the road, too, there's a special feeling about that. We love to beat. I mean, when you're an underdog and you beat the home team at home, it's nothing like it. Is that the best feeling as a quarterback going into somebody else's place and just ripping out a win? Yeah, and silencing the home crowd. I mean, absolutely, just seeing the jaws draw, like, what? Uh, but you'd hate to wait for it in that kind of fashion because I'm, I'm looking to think, they're going to win this thing. And just regular, I mean, they're going to win this thing. And Jordan misses the extra. I mean, he pulled that thing. It got, got tipped, okay? Officially, I think it was blocked. But, no, no. That toe of the club face came way over. Uh, yeah. I know that. Club face coming <laughs> over. Don't don't mistake that. This is how it sounded. Roxy Bernstein had a great call because I was I was in here in the studio. I was watching it with Peter Sampson, who's spinning it behind the glass as always. Uh, and, and we had a couple other staffers in here. And we're just thinking, just got the fourth and eight touchdown please make the extra point please make it and then Roxy set it up Jordan Shukar to give Oregon State the lead when they trailed 31-3 you have to be kidding me oh my goodness poor Jordan Shukar Misses the extra point and with 29 seconds to go, it's a tie game. So that's how it sounded, and I think Beaver fans collectively, their hearts dropped. Are you kidding me? Another yeah. missed kick is going to cost us a win. But thankfully, the Beavers rallied in overtime, and I'm starting to think more and more, Neil. <laughs> I know conventional wisdom says, you know, defer to get the football second in overtime. Colorado won the toss, and they deferred, but Oregon State got the ball first, Man, I'm seeing more and more teams that get the ball first in overtime. That score, and now the pressure is flipped onto the other team, right? I know you want to know what, what you need in order to extend the game, but there's something to be said for applying the pressure because that's what happened in this one, and, too. And, and knowing what momentum was doing at that time. I mean, you could not stop Oregon State's offense. I mean, what Jake Luton was doing for you know, 25, 30 minutes in that second half was, was incredible. And again, to see Jonathan Smith's composure on the sidelines, I mean, he really didn't. And they showed they had a close-up of him when Jordan Shakir missed that extra point. Very calm, but you're due. If you're an Oregon State, and I'm, again, I'm not a beaver, I'm not a duck, I'm, I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Mm-hmm. Typ- typical Oregon State. I mean, that's kind of what you're saying. Typical beavers. <laughs> beavers but it's beef. tied. So you're going to go to overtime and get punished, and it's just going to slow that slow drip from your gutter that you can't quite fix. Here it goes. We have to extend this thing out. We're going to lose. We had a chance to win. Jordan Shakira's going to walk home from Boulder all the way to Corvallis. They won't even get a butt, but they came back and won. Well, it's pretty damn exciting. That gutter drip, very <laughs> apt oh. for this time of year, Neil. How are your gutters doing there, all right? Doing great today. Doing great today. He's Neil Lomax. I'm Judah Newby. Talk more about this Beavers win, 503-417-7575. Go around the rest of the Pac-12. Set you up for Ducks, Arizona as well. Countdown to kickoff continues after this. Back to Countdown to Kickoff 
part of Oregon College Game Day with Judah Newby and Neil Lomax. Presented by Frost Brewed Coors Light on 1029 and 750 The Game. It all comes down to this. Fourth and goal for Colorado. Oregon State showing blitz. Montez throws. Got to give a lot of credit to Oregon State fighting back from 28 points down in the second half to win in overtime at Colorado. 41-34, to the final score. And uh, what a win. What a moment for Jake Luton. 28 for 39, all in the second half. 310 yards, three touchdowns. Isaiah Hodgins caught 11 balls for a buck 46 and two scores. Timmy Hernandez, 7 for 72. Jamar Jefferson, six catches. Trevon Bradford, Shout out Oregon City, 5 for 36 in the touch, including the game winner. Neil Lomax joins me. I'm Judah Newby on 1029, a 750 the game. It's a huge win for the Beavers. We talked about it in our opening segment there a little bit. But for Colorado, it's an equally disappointing collapse to do that to a one-win team on your home field. I know LaVisca Chenault wasn't playing that second half, but it's really inexcusable for them. And especially when Nixon caught, I don't know, 12 balls for over 180 yards. That kid, number three, was a... He, he stepped up, but you have to play two halves again and give credit to Oregon State's defense. They all hung in there and, and shut down their running game. That's to me, was the biggest part. You look at the whole scheme, you're going to say, okay, maybe 28, 29 carries, 200, something like 230 yards of total rushing. That looks good, but again, you take away the two big running plays, and Oregon State really, to me, shut down that running game and made Steven Montez throw the ball, which he looked very uncomfortable doing. And they had to make some big throws and couldn't really come up with it. So, uh, again, there's this momentum thing. If, if you don't play the game, you just don't understand it. If you, you watch at home, what's it? It's something about it when everybody just catches it. Both sides of the ball, the kicking game, the coaches kind of feel it. And that changes your game plan, changes what you're going to call. It changes, okay, if we, we got this thing going, our protection's better, you know, this side's better, he's rolling out better. And you can just feel it that totally changed it the way Oregon State started throwing. And it looked like they're Throwing against three or four different secondary guys, they had a difficult time. And again, Jonathan Smith, what a hang in there. I feel so good for him yeah. and that whole staff, the relief. That plane ride home, I mean, with the boosters, it's going to be a four. It's awesome to have that feeling that you're, you're, you won your, your first Pac-12 game in two years. Yeah, four years. It's been since 2014. In Colorado. Oh, the road game. But the first, first Pac-12 oh, game yeah, yeah. is Civil War. You're right. First so Pac-12 first Pac-12, game. if you think yeah. about that, even at yeah. home, you haven't won a game due to for two years. Oof. I mean, that that's just so hard. Yeah. And it's easy for these coaches to say about, hey, we keep teaching these young boys to, you know, hang in there and belief and faith and fight and don't give up. Man, when you're getting beat every Saturday, especially even at home, you're getting beat. The fans are complaining. The fans are leaving. Nobody's standing. It's hard. But, man... They showed a lot of grit. So that, that and a lot of credit should go to the coaching staff for keeping that momentum going. Offensive coordinator Brian Lindgren deserves credit. Tim Tibisar, the defensive coordinator. Mm-hmm. Look, that defense has been a sieve at a lot of times this year, including last week with Cal. And they basically had to pitch a shutout in the second half to get this thing done. And they did. And they stood up in the overtime. I mean, I know they let Colorado get one field goal late, but they it was a field goal. After Katie Nixon got a one-handed, right. you know, forty-yard catch in the second half, they stood up, held him to a field goal. Jonathan Smith used his timeouts wisely enough, 
to give himself time for one final drive. And really, it comes back down to Jake Luton. Really, I mean, think about this. 49-7 to homecoming loss last week. 31-3 to third quarter on the road this week. And you just go through your brain. Okay, what changed? The only thing I can point to on paper that changed was the quarterback position. <laughs> they entered a new guy. And he dominated. And, and the confidence he, he brings. I, I, the confidence he brought into that second half, you, it was contagious. Yeah. I mean, some of the throws he made, they, they converted three huge fourth downs, let alone the one in over. I mean, absolutely critical. Third and eights. There was a fourth and nine. Uh, the Hopkins, you know, Isaiah yeah. got that. They had to go to the, the replay, make sure there wasn't a first down. It was crucial conversions to keep the momentum going. And that came from that position at quarterback. So Jake brought that. Everybody else felt it. The protection. I mean, you watched a little bit of the game. The first half, what the heck was it? I mean, they could not keep anybody off of Jack Coletto to save his life. I mean, he was getting swamped, right? It was, he had three or four sacks against him. And then offensive line came alive. But Jake Luton threw the ball on time. It was, it was a very exciting game, obviously, but a pretty thing to watch as an ex-quarterback. And shout-out for uh, putting Jack Coletto in late in the overtime when you had goal-to-go situation. You took out Luton. You put in Coletto because you want to bring your quarterback in as a rush threat. Yeah, you knew you were going to run the ball, and they still couldn't stop it. Right. And Colorado, you know, McIntyre called timeout to put – they only had 10 guys on the, the field at that point. So defensively, they are all out of their scheme, had no idea what they're doing, but they knew for a fact – now you have the, the Tim Tebow package coming in. So what are you going to do? You load up that side. They still ran quarterback power right. And got the touchdown. Camus Papermakers. Yeah. That's how you do it right there. All right. We'll still unpack Beavers and Buffaloes as the evening unfolds. This is Countdown to Kickoff alongside Neil Lomax. I'm Chu Danubi. We will talk to Pac-12 Network Analyst Nick Aliotti coming up in a little bit. He's currently, you know, on TV breaking down all the games. But as soon as he gets off, we're going to give him a phone call. Talk to him about this Beavers win and uh, this Ducks game coming up. You know, just to foreshadow. Part of my the favorite part I have every Saturday is when I talk to coach in the morning, and uh, you know start setting up times. You know when works best for you and all that. And first thing he What's does, he? what he answers today, he's, I say, "Hey, coach, how you doing?" He says, "Judah, I told you Washington State was gonna win last week. <laughs> <laughs> you were giving me crap for it." And I was like, "Oh man, coach, you were right on the money." So uh, he's feeling pretty good. He wasn't the only one. That's who, right. who else? I called them by ten points. I was the bad apple, you know, and, and I just thought that's what it was going to go down. And all you guys here, all the experts, you know, Jordan Kent, everybody here, oh yeah, or everybody took Oregon, <laughs> you know, thirty-seven, thirty-two. It's always the favorite, Oregon by a touchdown. Uh, but that's last year. That's last week. I mean, and, and Nick yeah. Alley, yeah, Mister Excitement. I love Mister Excitement, Coach Alley. He's awesome. Got a college football Hall of Fame quarterback across from me, and then. You know, in my opinion, a college football Hall of Fame defensive coordinator, Nick Aliotti. That's going to be a must-listen-to segment. It's going to come up here in just a few minutes uh, after the Peter Sampson update. We'll reach out to Coach, get him on the phone. Elsewhere in the Pac-12, end of the third quarter in Berkeley, Nick and Neil, and it's 12-7 Cal over number 15 Washington right now. What a bizarre football game this is. Cal with with the lead. Keep in mind, Cal just put up 49 on the road in Reeser. UW is coming off the big win over Colorado at home, 15th in the country. Yet their offense has been shut out the last two quarters now at Cal. 12-7 Bears. That's a big surprise. Yeah, it's a lot of field goals going on for the Golden Bears. But, yeah, I don't know. You know, I, I was not a big Jake Brownie fan early in the season. To me, he was playing very mediocre. He told him to uh, grow. Gaskins, yeah. 
the, again, when you miss key players, I mean, Miles Gaskins, you know, a thousand yard rusher, all for it, and he was not himself. He got beat up real bad against UCLA. If you watch that one, he wasn't really himself against Oregon. They went to a three head monster, doing a lot of uh, different running backs in that game. So you miss your running ga- game. I don't think he's that great of a passer. And when you force the pass, because they're missing their star receivers last, you know, Pettis and Ross last couple years ago. Exactly. Yeah. Jake Browning, eight for 15 in this game with one touchdown and one pick. Earlier this year, you told him to grow up. I remember that that show. You said, grow up, Jake Browning. Right now, he's not playing very grown up as UW's trailing at the end of three. All right. Short break. Peter Sampson has a full scoreboard update, and then we'll talk to Nick Aliotti. This is Countdown to Kickoff. Chuda Newbie, Neil Lomax on the game. Welcome to Countdown to Kickoff, part of Oregon College Game Day with Judah Newby and Neil Lomax. Presented by Frost Brewed Coors Light on 1029 and 750 The Game. Couldn't be better weather for football here in the PDX. Welcome back. Countdown to Kickoff into the 6 p.m. hour, wherever you may be listening. This is 102.9 750 game. Cheer to newbie, Neil Lomax, as uh, we'll take you up to 7.30. That's when the Ducks will kick off with Arizona. You can watch the game on ESPN. Join us right after the game, judging right around 10.30, maybe 10.45. Perfect time for a post-game show. Isn't that right, Neil? Perfect can't, time. Can't wait for that. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of fun, but we'll take your reaction at 503-417-7575. Uh, I just talked to uh, Nick Aliotti. And he says he's looking forward to coming on, but he's got to watch the end of this uh, Cal game because Cal is in a nip-and-tuck affair with UW. As soon as that's over, we'll get Coach on the horn. We'll also go live to Tucson at 7, talk to James Creppy of the Oregonian and Oregon Live. He'll uh, set the scene for us. A lot of fun talking to James. He's informed, and uh, he brings the energy, which is half the battle with, uh, with some of the guys that you reach out to over the phone. He knows what he's talking about, too, and uh, he's bold, too. He brings that little SEC swagger. Yeah, I, that's, what, that's what I was going to say. He kind of they're, they're all cocky from the SEC. Beat writers, reporters, they all think that's the best league, and you know, <laughs> kind of rightfully so. Right. Uh, they do back that up, but when they cover those type of schools, uh, it, it is a, a complete different animal with what they have, facilities and everything, and you come to the Pac-12 or the West Coast, different style of offense, different athletes, different ways to coach. So I think he's going to get – excuse the pun, like today, getting his feet wet with what the West Coast, it, it is, it's a different style. Coaching, players, uh, it, it, and, and I think he's starting to see that, but he has an insight, though, that a lot of us don't, you know, he's got another level. You know, we, some folks are at 30,000 feet, and we think we're ground level, know what we're talking about, like I'm the expert, I know what I'm talking about. You don't, because things change. Injuries, and again, these are 18, 19, 20-year-olds, not 30-year-old professionals, mm-hmm. uh, and the, the coaching changes. You keep forgetting about that. This is Kevin Sumlin. I mean, the Pac-12, all these new coaches. And congratulations today to, to Arizona State. Yeah. Uh, great victory in the Coliseum. And they made coaching changes. A lot, you know, Chip Kelly at UCLA got absolutely throttled last night by Utah. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago with the Pac-12, the landscape, Judah, that Utah is probably the hottest team in the Pac-12. And they showed it today. Well, I tell you what, well, last night they did, yeah. yeah I and, mean, and paired with the, you know, efforts today of USC at home. And half the people in Tempe were ready to go, Herm Edwards, you know, you lost two in a row. Let's get rid of him. And what a victory they made. Of course, there's a pretty good receiver on Arizona State. You're, I don't know what his numbers were. I know the punt return was like 92 yards, but I saw four or five catches he made. You talk about a top 10 NFL pick 
in, in, in next spring's draft. I, I was, we can get to Justin Herbert later on, mm-hmm. where, but what he should do. But mm-hmm. Harry is an amazing physical specimen. Uh, we kind of talking about off the air about a Julio Jones, um, that Brandon Edwards kind of, that just physical specimen that can just go up and get it. I tell you what, the guy is absolutely cut. You know, and I don't want to, uh, you know, border on just marveling over these football players' bodies. But when you're talking about prospects at the next level, you look at their body. You look at how they're sculpted, basically. Nikhil Harry looks like a college Julio Jones. He looks like when Julio Jones was playing in Tuscaloosa. That's who he looks like. Mm. The On top of all that, the dude is so fast, <laughs> Neil. He is so fast. I mean, I, when you're talking about building your ideal um, receiver that you want to go to your X, if you will, guy on the mm-hmm. outside, right? Right. Your X receiver, X or Z, both well, sides X on the hash. Z, you know, they're what, on the they're on the numbers. Yep. What kind of profile are we talking about? Height, weight, and then the additional element of speed. Well, obviously, you'd like to get a six five, six four guy that can run the four six or four five. That's the kind of guy you want. Quickness is important too. Yeah. Speed is one thing. I mean, a forty yard dash. I mean, there's only so many go routes you'll throw. We call them the nine route of the streak or the fly. But it's those little five-yard nows or five-yard slants or uh, zeros and goes or the shouts or the chinas, which means you've got to have a lot of quick feet to sell a, a shallow route or a quick slant and chop your feet and get back out on a two-out or to the sideline. That's quickness. So speed and quickness and the agility. And, yeah, he's physically built like that. But I, when I watch him play, the durability, that's why he's in there. He takes some shots, and he keeps coming back and playing over and over and over. You know, and Manny Wilkins, Jr., he's been seems like he's been there for seven years, too. But that just, I'm proud of Herm Edwards and how calm he looks on the sideline as well. People expect him to just go crazy and yell at the officials and kind of the other way around. You watch uh, Helton on USC sideline, he's on the hot seat right now. So, no question. Uh, By the way, this is the first home loss, I believe, in Clay Helton's USC tenure. I don't think he had lost a home game as USC coach. A lot of road losses, a lot of bowl losses. That's interesting. So nothing in the Coliseum? No, nothing in the Coliseum. I'll have Bring to double, wow. double confirm that. Maybe Peter Sampson uh, behind the glass. Double confirm that before uh, you know I ride or die with that. But how about Nikhil Harry? Also, you know, big players make big plays right. in big moments. Late third quarter, ASU down by four. Punt return, cue it up. Here's Harry on the return. Trying to switch fields. Gets a block. Uh-oh. Nikhil Harry. Do you believe that? One way and another, and all the way to the house. Touchdown, Nikhil Harry. Arizona State with a momentum play. Unbelievable. You know what's more unbelievable than anything else? There was no block in the back. Right. There was no holding. There was no clip. I mean, We folks, see that all the time. 75% of all penalties are on special teams. 75% of all penalties in NFL and college football on special teams. Because the angles, you got space. There's so much space, you're trying to get that block, and half the time you slip, push the guy in the back, you grab him. Because these guys only play, most of those players are platoon special team players. They're on the field seven or eight times, so this is their time to shine. They're always grabbing somebody. So that was the most incredible thing when he reverse fields you on that one. I'm like, oh, there's got to be a penalty. Got to be a holding. Got to be a block in the back. No yellow flags. There were some close ones, but I think the guys got inside, right? They got their head inside. If they don't call it, it's not a penalty. That's right, man. If 75% of penalties are on special teams, are like the other 20% on the offensive line? So is that And the other 5% 5 for defensive pass interference? 
<laughs> Feels Let's, that Sam, way. He'll, he'll look that up for us. Yeah, yeah. That, Peter, we got like five on. things Can you look for you that to one up on that one, too? But I'm looking at the uh, recap. It looks like it is the first home loss in the tenure of Clay Helton at USC. Peter, thanks for uh, finding that as well. And they had won 18 home games in a row. I was going to say, that's nine. I mean, that's, yeah, you get seven home games three years for him. That's 20, 20. That's, a, that's incredible. First home loss, huh? Mm. Which, by the way, USC, they are four and four now. That's tough going, man. I, like I had him Hel- on my hot list about three weeks ago. We talked yeah. about it last week when Utah beat him finally. And we're like, okay, Utah is the best in the South. You know, look at Colorado. They were 5-0, and but who did they go and lose to? USC. And they lose to U-Dub. Washington. Yeah. U-Dub. U-Dub's hanging in there for a big, big bowl win. But here they are at Strawberry Canyon, Strawberry Hill right here in Berkeley. And they only have seven points. Unbelievable. Berserkly, right? Justin Wilcox is, you know, looking to spring an upset of sorts here. So, you know, just when you think you've got a, um, you know, a, a handle on the Pac-12 landscape, you don't. It will rear its ugly head of sorts, whether it's uh, with the parody or with the officiating or with the politicking, just in general in this conference. Never a dull moment covering the Pac-12, but unfortunately, it comes at the expense of national prominence. This conference, a long way away from competing in the you know college football playoff not only this year but you know next year moving forward which one player that has a lot to say about next year's Pac-12 landscape is the quarterback of the Oregon Ducks Justin Herbert um let's go ahead and we'll take a quick time out right here but on the other side Neil I want to get your thoughts on whether or not Justin Herbert should return for his senior year or should go to the NFL draft and whether or not he should may, might be the wrong question but what are the factors involved with that decision We'll play out what Justin Herbert said about that topic this week. We'll get the College Football Hall of Famers' take on that coming up on the other side. Plus, Nick Aliotti and James Crepe live from Tucson. This is Countdown to Kickoff on 1029 750 The Game. You're listening to Countdown to Kickoff, part of Oregon College Game Day with Judah Newby and Neil Lomax. Presented by Frost Brewed Coors Light on 1029 and 750 The Game. Can you believe it was a year ago that Willie T was in Eugene doing his thing, trying to work with Braxton Burmeister and a banged up Justin Herbert, rushing him back, trying to get Oregon to a bowl game. They finished with seven wins. They got the Las Vegas Bowl, baby. And then Willie walked out the door to take his dream job. That dream has turned to a nightmare in year one. <laughs> I'm Judah Newby. He's Neil Lomax, the College Football Hall of Famer. Neil, did you see this game? Florida State and Clemson, you know, number two Clemson, they're obviously a very, very good team, but it ends up finishing a 59-10 to blowout of Slick Willie's Seminoles. And I tell you what, things are not good in Tallahassee. <laughs> no, 49-point loss. Now, this is Florida State we're talking about in Tallahassee. It is the worst home I, I, loss in Seminole history. It is tied for the worst loss in program history and, and, and ever. Really, it was, it was 59 to 3. I mean, Florida State got a la- last minute touchdown. Could make it look a little better. But yeah, you can say it's against Clemson, but Clemson was having a hard time scoring points against anybody the last couple of weeks. So that is, uh, it's embarrassing at home. And he's had a couple embarrassing moments early on, too. And they were, they were lucky. I remember the game I watched was a Louisville game. And Louisville basically. Thanks to Coach Petrino, gave him that game. And Louisville hasn't won a game since. They're terrible. They were getting, they're 0-5 in the ACC. They, they're getting uh, thrashed by everybody. And you really, folks, go back about four weeks ago and watch the Florida State-Louisville game. And 
Louisville had the game won. Why are they throwing the ball? And exactly. And Florida State got was able to pick it off, go down, score last minute. They were lucky to get out of Louisville, Kentucky, with a win. Bobby Petrino is smelling buyout. I think he's he's done. <laughs> he is done. Buyout. By the way, embarrassing is the right word for that FSU game because that's the word that Willie Taggart used in his first comments after. All right. Um, very disappointing loss. Um, embarrassing performance. Um, First time since I've been here uh, where I felt like we had some guys that quit on our football team, and that can't be tolerated. Uh, it's one thing you can't do. You can't quit. If you quit, you don't play. So um, we got to do a great job evaluating that film and making sure we got the right guys that's out there battling with us. You know, um, again, every aspect of the game, offense, defense, and special teams, we uh, didn't play well at all. And, and you must play well against a really good football team. And we did all the things you can't do against a team like that. And um, that's on me and uh, our coaches and our players and everybody that's here. And we got to find a way to get that right. He says some players quit on his football team, Neil. Uh, now, here, you've been there. I'm what? shaking my head because that's, you know, especially in the college, uh, you know, high school. I've seen that a lot, but in college and in pros, no, I mean, to, and have your head coach call out some guys like that and use that, use that word, to use that word. And usually you say, hey, I've got a lot of my players frustrated. I've got a lot of my players that are hurt or they're out of position or we had to suspend a cut. You know, you kind of have some excuses in college because you have so many players. I mean, there's 80, 90 players dressing down, especially at a home game. And it's, it is on him. It is on the coaching staff to keep those guys engaged. It's a home game. I don't care who he is. It wasn't Alabama, but still, it's Florida State. It's the Seminoles. And it, it's for, for the alumni, for that whole school. No, it, that's very embarrassing. And you talked about buyout. Uh, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's so early to say, but, yeah, you do. You kind of shake your head. And if this continues, especially into next year, this is Florida State. I, I got to mean, there's got to be a short leash in a lot of these programs. And – that's got to be a short lease at Tallahassee. You you not you don't accept these kind of performances at home. That, that's the thing. You're at home. Okay, it's Clemson. Says yeah, it's a frustrating loss. We, we take the, no. You absolutely got your ass kicked. I mean, this isn't Bethune Cookman. You beat by fifty nine or something. This is. I, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I mean, it really is. And statistically, they they did nothing. And you got you got a quarterback who's been around. I mean, Francois has been there. He's experienced. He's your guy. You got some pretty good players there. But I tell you what though, when you can't block on your own line, and you might be able to speak to this more than uh, just about anybody, Clemson has four all Americans on their defensive line. Four. Pick well, and, and Florida one. State made Pick them all a matchup. and Florida State made them all all Americans again today. Yeah. Uh but again that, But that, how helpless a feeling is that when you know you can't block? N- but not that come on though. These are these guys, they're good enough to do their assignment. And do it well enough to have a competitive game at home. Okay, you get beat by a couple touchdowns to Clemson, you know, twenty-eight fourteen or something, or thirty-five to twenty, but not fifty-nine to three, and then you score at the end. It's fifty-nine ten. That that's downright embarrassing. It is. So you, we were talking about Oregon State. How, you know, you could say that they were in a similar position last week. Dial down the scale a little bit, but losing twenty-nine yeah. seven at homecoming after your bye week. Jonathan Smith stands up there and says. Uh, this was messy. This was gross. This was a, a bad, bad loss. You know, but he handled it with a little bit more grace and candor than Willie. 
And thankfully, he had Jake Luton to go to in the second half of this one, and he got the result. If you're looking for Florida State to turn it around, next week they're in Raleigh at a ranked NC State team. The following week, they're in South Bend at top five Notre Dame. The following week, they're back home against a very good Steve Adazio Boston College that can run the rock. Their last game is home against the top 10 Florida. You could make an argument that they will lose out. And if there was ever an argument to be had for a coach exiting after just one year, maybe it's this year with with Willie Taggart. And look, I don't want to knock the guy, but I kind of (laughs) do. Oh, yeah, you're the one that brought it up. (laughs) Now we go all the way to the ACC and Willie Taggart. That was a shocking score. I mean, it wasn't a, a shock or surprise they lost to a really good Clemson team. Wasn't surprised they lost, but the manner in which you lose sometimes, there's no such thing as these moral victories and moral losses, but uh, that, that's just downright embarrassing. He, he said it so. So it's going to be exciting, but again, I love to stay in the Pac-12 and find out what's going to happen down the road because I picked, you know, we were talking about different guys running the table. I thought three or four weeks ago, especially after the Stanford, uh, before the Stanford game, after the Stanford game, I thought Oregon would win out. I really did. If they can get overcome what they did and they beat Washington to, to win out. Now we're talking about the Pac-12, Judah, you can't overlook anybody now. Oregon State just proved that. Cal's proven that right now. You know, right now, it, it's Washington State looks like the best team in the North, the way they've been playing. We'll see how that pans. It's a great game going on. It's 31-24 down in the farm. Yeah. Great football game. Typical Washington State football. But for Stanford to score that many points, they do have a healthy Bryce Love finally. But he's not doing a lot. It's a passing game down there. So, you cannot overlook anybody now in the Pac-12. Yeah, and you mentioned Oregon. They've got Arizona on the road. Then they're home to Chip Kelly next week. Uh, you can hear our countdown to kickoff at 2.30 next or next week, Saturday afternoon, leading up to a 4.30 kick with Chip back in town. Then it's on the road to Salt Lake at Utah, where they've won their last two trips out there, though, You know, including that upset a couple of years ago, Justin Herbert as a freshman. Then versus Arizona State, and then on the road in the Civil War. I mentioned this before the break. I want to get your thoughts on this. Justin Herbert you know, was asked this week about the CBS Sports report that he is likely to return to Oregon for his senior year rather than go into the NFL draft where he is universally considered at least a first-round pick, if not a, uh, you know, a top overall pick in the top quarterback taken in the draft. Uh, this is what he said in response to the CBS Sports Report at practice earlier this week. I haven't thought three seconds about it. Um, I, I haven't even talked to my parents about it, and, and it hasn't crossed my mind at all. And, and uh, I know that Coach Chris Ball and I and the team, we made a decision not to not to talk about it or think about it. So um, I'm, I'm not quite sure what was reported, but um, I haven't really spent any time on it at all. He said he hasn't thought three seconds about it. The problem with that answer for me is that that phrase, I haven't thought three seconds about it, it's a little too premeditated <laughs> to uh, to be actually true. What do you think of Justin oh, Herbert's okay, response? Maybe it wasn't three seconds or three minutes or a second, but <laughs> that's the PC thing to say. It's the right thing to say. I mean, it's such a big money business now with agents and sports representations and you know different assistant coaches and a friend that's still at Sheldon High School that might have said something to somebody who got to CBS Sports or whatever. Come on. Uh, I, I know what I would be in his situation, and I know what it was like because I was there. I just thought about the next week. I didn't really think about that. I mean, even your mom, he's got great parents. He's got great history, huge sports family. The, come on. The whole community from Sheldon and the folks he knows. You know, He knows Chris Miller and their family and their dads and 
So, yeah, obviously the kid might be a top 10 pick, maybe one of the first quarterbacks pick. But right now, when he's asked that question, I guarantee you thinking about the film, thinking about what I got to eat for lunch, what's practice going to be like, I got to get my studies done, and we got Arizona. I'm telling you, that's what really he was thinking. So here comes some come out of left field, some guy from CBS throwing some lob ball in. Oh, I hear you're going to stay for your senior year. <laughs> maybe I will, maybe I won't. But I'm not thinking three seconds. That's what I took out of it. Uh, that's not important enough. It's not relevant enough to even answer that. So I don't want to. That's what I got out of that. So you put no stock in that report? Well, I, I don't know. I don't know who his source was. But it could have been anybody. I mean, I guarantee you, Justin Herbert's getting 15 letters a day from different sports representation companies. Four or five different agents are calling his mom and dad. That's what happened back in my day as one or two. He's getting four or five because he might be the top pick. So that's happening all the time. So he's going to figure that out after the season. But I know even this offseason, he put together a little team. Either his dad's in charge of this or an uncle. They have a great family. You handle that. I don't want to mess with it. When June 5th comes along or August, we go to camp. I don't want to hear about it. You need to take care of this. So there's some family member, some trusted friend or really close to the Herbert camp is handling that. Justin Herbert's not worried about that. That's, that's what I'm getting out of this. He is just worried about playing this week. What was it like after your junior year, going into your senior year? You're starting to get a lot of the headlines, a lot of the attention at a little old Portland yeah. State on the park blocks. You know, could you sense that the attention on you was starting to swell from the offseason to the fall camp and week by week during the year? Could you feel that? It, you couldn't help not to because of the, the media. Even back then, it was maybe or three or four stations, but they were always there. Uh, ESPN was kicking into high gear in the late 70s, early 80s. They had a reporter come out. What, what was ESPN? back then? So uh, I would say at least once or twice a week, there was some agent on campus. There was some sports representation company, and Mouse Davis and the coaching staff handled that for me. And I don't really remember that much talking to my mom and dad about it too much until after my senior year. And we, I started getting a lot of awards and flying back to New York and this and that. And, you know, uh, back in those days, there wasn't just one big combine. You, each team could fly you to their facility. So I was, I was traveling a whole, whole lot from pretty much January 1 on. But I got to play in the East-West Shrine game which was great. I got to play in the Senior Bowl. I was MVP in the Senior Bowl. So that, that really helped. That January 9th game really kind of put me on the map that I can play with these guys. Who was your coach in the uh, Senior Bowl? Do you remember? Oh, you know, yeah, I do. It was, uh, you know, it was Sam Weish. No kidding. Sam, the uh, 49ers. I think it was the 49ers staff because he was the offensive coordinator. If you want to look at that, 19, yeah, Judy, you're great. You're going to pop this up here. 19, I think the 49ers... 1981? 81. Senior Bowl? Yeah, I think that's right. I think that it was the 49ers were handling the North team back then because it was this... I just remember Sam Weish was my, uh, was my coach, my offensive coordinator. I can't remember if Bill Walsh was head coach or not. Isn't that amazing, yeah. Neil? Sam Weish. Then he got the job with the Bengals uh, a couple years later. The North beat the South in the 1981 Senior Bowl. 23-10. to 10. The North coach... This is crazy. Bill Walsh. Okay. 49ers. You played for Bill Walsh at a senior bowl. That's so crazy. I don't think he was even around. <laughs> I mean, seriously, all I remember is Sam Weiss would come in my room like every day, every after practice. Okay, you got it. Let's go over some film. You got it. He was so into it, making sure I was prepared. 
he really kind of taught me. He had Mouse Davis him. Okay, this is what the pros going to be like. It's full time. It's twenty four seven. Neil Lomax, MVP, nineteen eighty one Senior Bowl. You entered that game holding over ninety NCAA passing and total offense records. That's all. It's only ninety. Ninety. <laughs> Yeah, it's Portland State, man. We threw every down. It's Come on. I wish I was alive back then. I really do. You would have been one of my little slot backs. You would, you would have caught 11, 12 balls a game for about a buck 30. That you would have, yeah. I'm a possession guy. Yeah, you just kind of get in that little 10 yard area. And I take hits, man. Are I'm you, unafraid over the middle. Uh, you would have got down. You would have, you would have caught and got down. <laughs> uh, man, I could think about that all day. You know what? <laughs> one of these days, we'll get the pigskin. We're going out. We're running some routes. You're teaching me the route tree. Turkey Bowl. Let's go. Thanksgiving at our house. We're there. Come on. He's the College Football Hall of Famer, Neil Lomax. I'm Judah Newby. Look at this. What's going on in Berkeley? Cal Washington. We'll talk about that one. We'll talk to Nick Aliotti and go live to Tucson at 7. Countdown to kickoff. More of it coming up on the game. Well, it's a final in Berkeley. Cal takes down number 15, Washington, 12-10. to 12-10. The only scoring in this game for Cal was a pick six and a couple of field goals. And they take down Washington, 12-10. to Man, the Pac-12 never ceases to amaze. It really doesn't. And that pick six, by the way, was on UW's backup freshman quarterback, Jake Hayner. I'm Judah Newby. He's the College Football Hall of Famer, Neil Lomax. Neil, right when we think we've got a, a, a pulse on this conference, it goes ahead and surprises us again. You cannot look overlook anybody. I was just talking about that. And I don't know if the Huskies, quote, overlooked uh, Cal down there, but Jake Browning gets gets dinged up a little bit, has to come out for a series. Uh Jake Hayner comes in. He's one for four for 11 yards and throws the pick six. One offensive touchdown in this game. One. And Jake Browning, it is on you. And you've got to lead this team. You've been there for four years. That's unacceptable. I mean, 11 for 21, 148 yards. But the key to this game is Justin Wilcox, the defensive mind. That's what did it. I mean, look at the rushing. You don't have a Miles Gaskin. So that really hurt the Huskies, Judah. Right. Really hurt. But... You know, Pleasant only ran the ball 12 times for 62 yards. Uh, but what a great victory for Cal. And you just mentioned last time that the Golden Bears beat the Huskies, some quarterback who plays for the Rams? Yeah. He's not, too, he's not having too bad of a year, is he? He's not. Jared Goff, right? 2015 Jared Goff. Jared Goff. Pretty amazing. And, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's a huge win for Cal. It's an equally disappointing loss for UW. And coming up next for the Huskies, they will host Stanford next week. Stanford in a dogfight right now, if you will, with Wazoo 31 to 24. And as I say that, Gardner Minshew tosses another touch, and we're gonna have a 31 up ball game in the fourth quarter on the farm. Who's better in your mind right now? Now that we know that uh, UW has lost to Cal, would you go with Wazoo or UW? Who's better? Oh, Washington point? State at this point, no question. And yeah. the way they're playing right now, I mean, there's they're scoring. Uh, they might have the best defense in the world, but uh, Oregon might disagree with that, especially in the first half. Last week, you know, Peyton Pelour and that those guys run around, play really well. Uh, I think Woods is a very underrated linebacker for Washington State, and but offensively, they're they're just a machine, a well-oiled machine. Ran this offense is run by, I should say, a grad transfer who came like in the middle of May. That's what impresses me, that he's picked up this complicated system that just has concepts. We talked a lot about it last week, a lot. And Jordan Kent brought it up, too. It's the receivers being on the same page uh, of the quarterback. They have to see the same coverage. So they just put 30, they just got 31 points. This is a great game. So 
Folks, if I was you, I wouldn't be listening to me and, and Judah. <laughs> no, I'd no, be no, turning no, no. on. Where are they on, we'll, by the way? We'll, we'll it's on, it's Pac-12 Network. We'll update 31, you along the way. 31-31. Awesome game. It is a great game. We're going to be talking about it. We'll go live to Tucson at 7, talk to James Creppy of the Oregonian and Oregon Live. You mentioned the Oregon-Wazoo game from last week and how Wazoo went up 27 nothing at halftime. Oregon, obviously, they came out a little bit flat. You got to give all the credit in the world to Washington State for coming out as crisp as they did, executing at such a high level on offense. But Neil, what'd you make of Oregon's flat start to that game? That was concerning. It, it really was because of just offensively how sharp they've been, led by number ten Justin Herbert and the bad snaps early on. Again, we we beat that horse to death last week talking about the crowd noise, game day, uh, all that pregame hype. I think really affected U of O. It did. They just came out. Not the same team we've seen because they had amazing, unbelievable first half stats. I mean, we were just glowing over how well they've scored. They've been averaging like 25 points in the first half. Justin Herbert's thrown for over like eight touchdowns, averaging. I mean, it's been incredible the statistics that Oregon's put up the first five or six weeks going that game in the first half. The second half's been kind of their letdown. So that was the big surprise is how efficient they've been. And again, you got caught up in the emotion, got caught up in. Playing a team that looked just a little faster, better, more organized, and maybe a little more well-prepared. And that goes back to coaching. And with the thing I like about Mario Cristobal, he takes it. He takes it in. That's his style. I mean, his pregame warm-ups. I mean, I wasn't there personally. We were talking about it. I hear his pregame warm-ups are like, you got to see this thing. It's like Marine Corps. It's Navy SEAL kind of stuff. They, I mean, they, go, they get a lather going. And I don't know if that affected them and how hyped up they had to be to match the hype. But that was, that was late in the egg. And they, obviously, they cannot do that down there in Tucson. they got to come out in the first half now. How do you avoid put, that? Yeah. Well, you, you flush it. You flush it now. You're at a, a, an environment I think it's not going to be as intense as it was in Pullman. I mean, this was hyped-up game, and you can say what you want, but Oregon did not live up to the potential. They did not. Do they have that potential? Here's what I kind of worry about when we'll get into matchups is, do, does Oregon have the playmakers that we all thought they had in the first three or four weeks of the season? You're kinda, you had all these guys running around. Now it's down to one or two receivers and one really running back, C.J. Vardell. So I'm curious who really shows up for the Oregon offense because Justin Herbert needs some targets because they're going to have to throw the football to win this football game. You know, that Garner Minshew situation reminds me a lot of the Vernon Adams situation when he was a grad transfer from Eastern Washington in this regard. The timeline was far from ideal when Vernon was coming to Eugene. He had to pass a late math test that he had previously failed and had to take again and then everybody had all their attention on could Vernon Adams pass this math test and this was in August on his way to try to become a duck quarterback he entered halfway through fall camp missed a bunch of valuable reps got in first game Eastern Washington finger injury week two at Michigan State had that finger injury if his finger is healed he hits that go ball late in the fourth quarter needs Lansing and Oregon wins that game Number five versus number seven. They win that game with game day on the scene in East Lansing. That whole season looks different. You know, give Minshew a lot of credit. When you look at grad transfers coming in to play quarterback, it's it's almost perfect for them because they are flying under the radar from a, uh, you know, attention perspective. Mm-hmm. Who is this guy coming from East yeah. Carolina? Who is East yeah. Carolina? Yeah, in like Southwest and, Mississippi and Community College. Yeah, he's first from couple of years. Mississippi. You know, who is this Gardner Minshew with this stash? You know what I'm saying? And like, so he enters. So you got perfect situation flying under the radar. Perfect offensive system with the air raid. 
But I tell you what, Neil, he looks like he could play at the next level. Did did he show you enough, Gardner Minshew, to be like, wow, this quarterback, he has the talent, and I think he could do something past college. I don't want to get to Sundays yet because Luke Falk did a lot what Gardner Minshew's doing the last three or four years. That's fair. They had Holiday was there. I mean, Washington State's had some throwers. Uh, this is what it says to me, too, about you brought up Vern Adams. Stuff. Where's all these uh, scholarship quarterbacks that you had? Where's all these redshirt quarterbacks that you had on the roster that were going to be your future when Luke Falk goes? That tells you that you, a lot of times you get these five-star guys, like Oregon always gets these five-star guys. Well, where are you? you know, where, where, what happened to you? Why do we need Vernon Adams to come in? Why do we need Garden Menchie to come in? It's almost like, ooh, no, these guys really can't play. we got to go find somebody because the coach sit back and goes, he sure was good in high school. Yep, that but was he's not huge... doing it because Oregon always gets a one or two five-star quarterback. Well, for a couple of years, though, and it was Prokop. What was the other? Uh, Dakota Prokop. Dakota Prokop from and this is a, Montana State. Yeah, correct? from Montana State FCS, you know, in Portland State's conference. And, you know, he had to come out. And that was a huge reason why Mark Helfrich was let go was the failure to recruit quarterbacks. The irony was that he was the one that pulled three-star Marcus Mariota out of St. Louis High in Hawaii. Right. He brought Mariota here. That's the great irony. But when you fail to develop the quarterback pipeline, and watch this. I'm going to bring this all the way back around to Oregon, Arizona. When you fail to develop the quarterback pipeline from a recruiting standpoint, you cut yourself off at the knees. doesn't matter what you do recruiting-wise at the other positions. You don't recruit the quarterback, you fail yourself as a coach and the program. That's just the reality of it. Now, the coach at Oregon is facing tonight, Kevin Sumlin. When he was at Texas A&M, he had some wonderful, talented quarterbacks. Could not develop them. And that narrative around Kevin Sumlin was what I think was a huge reason why he did not get the Oregon job. They interviewed him multiple times. He was a candidate when this job came open mm. before they hired Willie Taggart, and he was a candidate this other time around before they promoted from within with Mario Cristobal, twice. But you look at the, his history with quarterbacks. Yes, he had Johnny Manziel. Good for him. He also had a five-star quarterback recruit named Kyle Allen, who came in to Texas A&M, you probably met Kyle Allen at some elite he was at the stuff, right? He, yes, he was one of our top 12. He was a top 12 high school quarterback coming in a few years ago. I do remember Kyle Allen. He was the same class with Christian Hackenberg. Yeah. It's kind of that, that area. A lot of great high school quarterbacks. Well, go ahead, finish your point. Well, I'm just saying, Kyle Allen, he came in, he ended up transferring. Kyler Murray came into Texas A&M. He ended up transferring. That's true. Because Kevin Sumlin couldn't develop the current Heisman Trophy candidate Kyler Murray at Texas A&M. He couldn't do it. He could bring him into College Station. He couldn't do anything with him. And that, to me, was a huge reason why he did not get that University of Oregon job. Now, to your point, you know, quarterbacks coming up out of Elite 11. I know it's a dynamic there. It's not always on the coaches, but I don't think Kyle, Kevin Sumlin. And then you look at what Khalil Tate's doing. Kevin Sumlin does not have a good history sans Johnny Manziel with developing quarterbacks on the field, in my opinion. But but offensively, they, they've been exciting him at Houston and Texas A&M, scoring a lot of points. So, But it's not just him. It's you know Chip Kelly's back, Herman Edwards back, all these new <laughs> Justin Wilcox got to win, but it's 12 points. You know, you feel you got to score 35, 40 points to win the Pac-12. That's kind of how it's been. Uh, that's been the average. And so, again, we'll see tonight because he – he came to a program, you're talking about Khalil Tate. I mean, last year alone. I mean, unbelievable the total yardage this guy had. I mean, rushing, 1,411 yards for 12 touchdowns. Passing, 1,591 yards and 14 touchdowns. 
26 touchdowns Khalil Tate was involved with as we go to break. But this year, he's got a total of six. Woo. So don't blame that on Kevin Sumlin. Injuries, I'll my blame. friend. He's hurt. He is hurt. All right, we'll talk more about the matchups coming up on the other side. James Crepe of the Oregonian live from Tucson at 7. This countdown to kickoff with Judah Newby and Neil Lomax on 1029, 750 the game. Back to Countdown to Kickoff, part of Oregon College Game Day with Judah Newby and Neil Lomax, presented by Frost Brewed Coors Light on 1029 and 750 The Game. Got our eyes locked on what's going on on the farm. Number 24, Stanford. Number 14, Wanzhou. Tied up at 31. Nine minutes to go. And Minshew, Mustache Minshew, has the football back in minus territory, trying to put the Cougs back in front. I'm Judah Newby. He's Neil Lomax. This is Countdown to Kickoff. Taking you up to 7.30. That's when Oregon kicks off down in Tucson. C before the S, Tucson. And uh, we'll take on the Arizona Wildcats. Trying to bounce back from last week's loss to the aforementioned Cougs up in Pullman. And, uh, Neil, as we got our eyes on this game, too, just saw Stanford go for it on a fourth and four, throw it out into the flat to Bryce Love, and he got stuck in the open field. Oh, great coverage. They dropped in total coverage, dropping seven. And, it, you're, you know, you're in that middle area. It's a difficult thing for college coaches to go when it's on, you know, the opponent's 35, 33, the, maybe the, even the 38, 40-yard line. You punt it. If you do punt it in the end zone, you're only, only going to get a plus 18 yards. But you still, you missed a field goal. Ball goes to the spot. Pro kickers can make those. You know, the pro kickers are pretty good from 50. College kickers these days, we see it. Yeah, it's less than 50-50. Statistically, that's what it shows. Anything over 45 yards, it's kind of 50-50. Yeah. So you go for it. So I, I don't blame that. But, again, just a great, great college football game. Yeah, it's a great one. I, you know, I'm curious. I was talking to a buddy of mine this week about fourth down and how aggressive coaches should be on that down. So I'll pose this scenario to you, Neil, and this is just a hypothetical, but say you're in plus territory, so anything in the opposition's half of the field, and it's fourth and five and less, Mm -hmm. okay? Fourth and five and less. I'm of the opinion that you should be going for that about 70% of the time. And I feel like we saw it with Mike Leach last week. 12 minutes left in the game. They're facing fourth and three from the Duck 45, and they take a delay of game, and they punt the ball back to Oregon, who goes mm-hmm. down and gets a field goal. And I'm like, I don't understand why he didn't go for it there. He ultimately went for it on fourth and six on the next possession when the game was closer in the fourth quarter. But what do you think? When you're in plus territory, how often should you be going for it on fourth and manageable? Well, and, and time left in the game is very important. Uh, that's why we were both surprised with like six, seven minutes left, Leach decides to punt. Said, no, that's a time to go for it because there's plenty of time left. Uh, just like the situation here, it was like eight and a half minutes left and Stanford went for it. Now when there's two minutes left or two and a half minutes left, that's maybe when let's punt it and let them go 80. There's a different scenario when you're on still the plus area and you want that team to drive. If you're in the lead, uh, to me it's time-wise. Anything more than seven, eight, nine minutes left, fourth quarter or more, go for it. Absolutely. I think three out of four times in that area – you go for it. Do you think coaches, in, in, and I hesitate to even ask you this, but at large, do you think coaches are too conservative on fourth down? Well, well I, and the reason why they are, they're going to look defensively and trust the defense. I think you guys will make the stop. And a, a great example would be that the game today with the Beavers. I, I'm I'm Oregon State, and I'm McIntyre. I'm going, well, we're going for it. Our defense can't stop in the second half. There's something about momentum, mm-hmm. how the game's been played out, who's hot, who's not. That's a situation. I'm Coach McIntyre. I am not putting that ball anywhere because I get the ball back to Oregon State. 
they're going to go down and score again. So I want to keep it away from a hot offense. And like Stanford's doing, you don't want to give it back to – you give Garden Minshew three or four opportunities with three or four minutes left, he's going to put seven, 14 points on you. So you got to take all that in and consideration. And is it an 80-yard if you punt it and it's only 70 yards? A lot goes into it, but how much time is left is huge. And how well is your defense playing? Right. That's the two considerations you to, I would look at as the head coach. How well is my defense playing? And how much time is left? We'll go live to Tucson here in a couple moments, but before we hit the break and the uh, scoreboard update at the top of the hour, you know, you played obviously uh, a lot of games in the great state of Arizona. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we saw Oregon go down there to uh, Tempe last year, take on Arizona State. That was, I think, the first game of the Pac 12 season for Oregon. They lost. Tony Brooks James uh, had a personal foul penalty. Willie Taggart got up in his face. Justin Herbert didn't have his best game. What's it like for a uh, a road team, you know, going down and playing in the heat and the conditions down there? Well, it's not. It's, okay, a month ago, we'd be talking about the heat. I mean, when it's 95 or 100 and you're playing at 4 o'clock or like 5 o'clock. Michigan State. Yeah, come on. It's nothing now. I mean, I don't, I don't care if it's even 90 degrees or 85 degrees down there. There's no humidity. It's beautiful evening down. It's in, come on, it's late October. The weather will have nothing to do with a hydration issue. It's going to be uh, what what I what I like about going to a, something like Tucson is there there will be no you cannot match electricity that they faced in Pullman. It will not be like that. This is going to be all the pressures on Arizona. They have not been playing well. They they almost had a chance to beat UCLA. It's a pretty good game. It was a good game. So we'll talk about the Rhett Rodriguez's in our second segment here in the second hour. Our matchups more, but weather wise. Perfect conditions. I expect both. I expect Oregon to play really well. We'll go live to Tucson. Coming up, talk to James Crappy of the Oregonian and Oregon Live. What does he make of this Oregon-Arizona matchup? Then Neil and I will give our matchups to watch, give a score prediction. Half hour to go. This is Countdown to Kickoff on 102 7.50 the game. Welcome to Countdown to Kickoff, part of Oregon College Game Day with Judah Newby and Neil Lomax. Presented by Frost Brood Coors Light on 1029 and 750 The Game. There ain't nothing like college football. Nothing like it this time of year. Half hour to go. Countdown to kickoff. He's Neil Lomax. I'm Judah Newby. 1029 750 The Game. Going live to Tucson in a couple seconds. Talk to James Creppy of the Oregonian and Oregon Live to set the scene from Arizona Stadium. Keeping our eyes on what's going on on the farm. Wazoo, a 38-31 lead on Stanford. Four minutes to go. Gardner Minshew's thrown for 200 and two touchdowns in the second half. It's the second half. He's okay. The facilitator, like you said, he's the point guard. Right. It's incredible to watch what he did uh, the first half against Oregon and now the second half against Stanford. And that The system, uh, it is. But you do need the, the sheriff to run that. Okay, Corral. You got to have right. the sheriff, and you got to have the single caller. You got to have the Johnny Menza. You got to have the quarterbacks uh, that run that type of system. And, and again, for him to pick it up that early, and to do what he's doing with these receivers that he just met literally five, six months ago, it's it's very impressive. Oregon is taking on Arizona. Let's go set the scene live from Tucson with James Crepia. James, good to talk to you again, my friend. How are you? Doing well. How are you guys doing? Doing great, it doing is. great. Hey, what'd you make of, you know, we talked to you a little bit in the post game last week in Pullman, but what'd you make of the uh, dynamic this week at Oregon practice? What were kind of the messages Mario Cristobal was sending to the media and, and to his team to try to dispose of last week's loss, get themselves ready for a second straight road game? 
Well, I think the message was about consistency. I mean, we talked about that last week. Last week was how do you come off a big win and how do you emotionally put yourself in the right place to compete after a big win with another tough test this time on the road. This time it's how do you rebound from a loss. And I think Cristobal tries to convey a sense of a message of consistency regardless of what the previous week was. Uh, but this is a classic example, and he mentioned it in so many words, of you can't let, you know, the proverbial, you can't let, let one loss beat you twice. Uh, you know, if you go out and you allow the first half uh, of last week to repeat itself, or the kind of performance that they had, certainly, to repeat itself, then you can lose again. Not just this week, you can lose any week. The way they played last week in the first half offensively, specifically, but not that the defense did particularly well in the first half either, you could, you, they, they could lose to anybody playing like that. Now, second half, hey, that, this team rebounded. Oregon rebounded in a big way. We know it got competitive. It was very close in the grand scheme of things. So <clears throat> the message for this week was they know that they are far more indicative for the season. The second half is far more indicative of what they are capable of. If they play what they're capable of, they obviously feel very good about themselves. But they have to make sure that they play like they're capable of. Well, hey, hey James, uh, Neil Lomax, when you say you're playing like you're capable of, when you're going in this week, though, if there's you're going against either Khalil Tate or Rhett Rodriguez, which is totally two different animals at that position, because this is not the same Khalil Tate that we all saw last year. That's obvious of the injuries. But preparing all week, it's not like the two same guys that have arms and feet like Khalil Tate, because Rhett Rodriguez is your college quarterback going to sit in the pocket and will not have a threat to run. How are they preparing for the two quarterbacks this week? Well, they didn't want to divulge too many plans, clearly, but I think you, you know, more or less the way you would almost any other week, you, you assume one. I, I say this, I think you have to try to prepare more for a dual threat and be more cognizant of that uh, than you do a true prototypical pocket passer for a couple of reasons. One, because you just have to be aware of that many more possibilities of what mm-hmm. they bring to the table, as you just mentioned. Two, there's only so much tape they can study of Rodriguez. He started for the first time last week. He played a lot the week before. Well, after you watch two game tapes, after that, you've kind of run, the, the wells run, run dry. <laughs> so you can kind of prepare, you know, intrinsically for only so much. So sooner or later, you're just picking up formations and tendencies, and that's what a lot of the defenders mentioned was studying formations and tendencies and situational aspects more so than necessarily Red Rodriguez, not a knock on him. It's just there isn't a lot to go off of. So you have to go more off of offensive scheme and tendencies and formations of what they do with down at distance, regardless of who the quarterback is. And then if it's Tate, be aware of his dual threat skills. If it's Rodriguez, you're probably going to be able to sit back more in coverage and let the defensive line bring the pass rush more often than not. Then obviously, yes, sure, when it splits his things that get dialed up, you do that. But otherwise, to prepare, I think you try to prepare as best you can for the biggest test possible and to be aware of what the other player brings to the table because whether Red Rodriguez starts or comes into this game at any point, yes, you still obviously have to be aware of what he's capable of, but you're right. I think he's I think he's proven already that he's pretty much just capable of passing from the pocket. Yeah, and, and you know, James, and what a difference going from one week to another. You, you, you got four or five days prepared for an Arizona team that's completely – the opposite of what you know the Cougars and Washington State and the Air Raid's all about. And even though Kevin Sumlin's kind of known for passing, he doesn't have the quarterback that he wants. And that's it's just defensively, I know from the offensive side, James, defensively, they're like, God dang, we did all this for Washington State. Now it's Arizona. It it's a quick turnaround to face a completely different offensive scheme. 
Yeah, but that said, and you're right, he doesn't have the quarterback just yet to exactly run exactly what he how he'd like. That said, you know, look, do, do they run more than Wazoo? Well, yes. I mean, the, most everyone in the country runs more than Wazoo. But when you say total opposite, I mean, this isn't a triple option or something. And I'm not sure I'd even call Arizona a run-first team. Uh, I don't think Kevin Sumlin has ever been a run-first guy. Uh, at A&M and at Houston, he was still a major passing guy. And I think a lot of his offense as a whole still has some roots far closer to the air raid than, than anything else offensively, certainly. Uh, so, no, it's not necessarily to the extent of what a Mike Beach does uh, or a Holgerson does necessarily, but it's pretty close as far as just the sheer demands of wanting to pass. Now, are they going to do it this, to that extent tonight and this season? No, no, they're not. But why is Khalil Tate running so much less than he did the year before? Well, yes, you mentioned the ankle injury. That's a big part of it. But the other part is I think he wanted to be more of a true, a true passer and try and show what he could do. And I think Kevin Sumlin wanted him to be more of a true passer, um, which is what his offense usually calls upon outside of when he had Johnny Mantel and those kinds of things. Yeah, or, or Case Keenum, a Case Keenum at Houston, but still you got a JJ Taylor and a Gary Brightwell. It's gonna, they're a lot more threat between the tackles than what they saw last week with just throwing swing routes and and little flats. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. This running back core is far far better and far different than the Wazoo running back core. They're, they're different threats. Uh, yeah, absolutely right. And JJ Taylor is a, a talented young man. So when you look into the stat breakdown of him, look, he's one of the nation's leaders in all-purpose yards in a kickoff coverage, you know, are going to struggle with that. So they have to be aware of that. If, if he has the ability to turn any kickoffs tonight, they have to stop him. Because if he gets one hole, one crease, it's, it could be over. That said, you break down and look into his stats of rushing as far as how good he does against winning teams versus losing teams, and the disparity is enormous, mm. absolutely enormous. I mean, against winning teams, I think it's around 65 or 68 yards per game rushing. Compared to against losing teams over 200, I think it's over 215 or something. That's, yeah, yeah thank you, Oregon nice. State. <laughs> yeah. so, and, and no, and oddly enough, I think it was Oregon State was the one that he didn't or something, or something like that. Somebody, somebody who you would have thought like, oh, he could have put up 300 in that game, but that was one that he didn't. The bottom line, do I think Oregon has a ton to worry about about him on the ground? A ton? No. Is he a threat? Yeah, a little bit. Um, but what I rank him necessarily of Pac-12 running backs and certainly nationally running backs, but I rank him very highly. No, not yet, because I haven't seen him do it against a really good team. You know? yeah. Now, if he does against Oregon today, well, then, then he proves himself, but it's up to Oregon to stop that, isn't it? Right now, Ducks defensively only averaging 3.23 yards a rush, you know, second-best rush defense in the Pac-12. James Crepia joining us. James, I'm going to offer an opinion on the Oregon offense, uh, and, and, you know, tell me if you agree with this or not, but... Man, I look at having a goal-to-go situation in Wazoo last week. First and goal from the six after a penalty. They end up running the ball three straight times out of that scenario, and they finish fourth and goal from the nine. Um, You know, I know they had a third and goal from the six in overtime against UW, and they ran it and scored for the winner. But I'm looking at number 10 as your signal caller, and how do you not give him one shot at the end zone from inside the 10 with three downs? Uh, Am I crazy to think that? No, no, and, and look, I know a lot of people are hanging on that, and ultimately, especially because Travis and I came in at that point after CJ had kind of winded, I know you can certainly revisit that and, and, and go through that a lot. Some of that, look, I mean, go back to before that, that third down, uh, one of those situations against Washington, 
where they called the timeout. And they said, well, how come you called the timeout? What was the strategic thinking there? And, and ultimately going to the run play was, well, Washington was about to drop into coverage. And in a tight spot, it's harder to do that. They're trying to force an interception. That The windows are very tight. It's very hard. Well, ultimately, yes, coaches' jobs to win the game, guys. We know that. But coaches' jobs also put their guys in the best chance to be successful, ultimately, which sounds really cliche. But, I mean, that's, that's what it is. Well, it's really hard for any quarterback, Justin Herbert or anybody else, to have a whole heck of a lot of success when the defense in a tight spot like that inside the 10, nearly inside the 5, is going to drop 7, 8 in the coverage. I mean, where, where, do you, where would you like him to hit the ball exactly? I mean, oh, wow, it's quick route. It's hard to react. Really? I, I don't think you're giving a very big cushion. At, well, you know, then, you, the six. then you got to block a lot better than they blocked. <laughs> if the numbers are that, really that way that, in your favor, you have to execute way better than that because optically that looked terrible. Absolutely. And look, and I, and I haven't gone through the tape of those three plays specifically to see exactly who was in the box, how they lined up. But ultimately, how they're lined up in the box almost almost becomes irrelevant because it's goal to go. So, all right, fine, there's seven or eight guys in the box. So they can move out of the box in the coverage very quickly when the field is only 16 yards long. So, ultimately, you're absolutely right. They have to execute better regardless. So they run a pass play and say, put the ball in the best player's hands and let him try to get to Dylan Mitchell or anybody else? Absolutely. Do they have to execute better in the running game? Well, that was a theme all night, guys. It wasn't just in that particular series on those three yeah, plays. That's right. They got blown off the ball a lot by that defensive line that, by the way, isn't exactly loaded with NFL players. <laughs> now, they're playing very well, and schematically they are a challenge. But let's not make the Washington State defensive line, no matter how big a scheme challenge that may pose, let's not make that into the Clemson or Auburn defensive line. Okay? They, are not, they are not that talented. They're not. They play very well, and they execute their scheme very well, which is all you can ask them to do. But these are not first-round NFL draft picks that went out there and did that last week. Do you think, uh, you know, it's funny, I brought this up to you as well, Neil, when we were watching. That Wazoo, uh, all the slanting on their defensive line, the personnel was different, but it looked a lot like what San Jose, was tra- San Jose State was trying to do week three of the non-con and actually did really well against the Oregon rush attack. James, my question to you, do you think Arizona will try to employ something similar on their defensive front? You know, their personnel probably will pale in comparison to what Oregon has on their offensive line, even without Panay Sewell. Do you think Arizona will try that similar slanting tactic? I, I think anyone can. look And look, it's not something that is so foreign to any defense. I mean, slants and stunts and these things are not exactly like so far out there that you know these are wild defensive things. No, no, they're, they're pretty. They're pretty traditional concepts. Uh, will they use them to the extent of Wazoo? No, there's there's no way. Uh, but they're not gonna they're not gonna throw out their playbook just because you know something worked for somebody else last week. Do I think they're gonna probably do it a little bit more than they did before? Maybe. Uh, can PJ Johnson, their JUCO transfer, uh, who is definitely their biggest presence, literally and figuratively, mm-hmm. uh, on the Arizona <laughs> defensive line? Uh, is, can he? be a challenge, both at nose, lined up over Jake Hansen at 340-some-odd pounds, uh, or at tackle, frankly, if he's at end, going up against a tackle, who he's nearly the same size and height and probably bigger in weight. Yeah, and if that guy starts, you know, slanting around or stunts around and all of a sudden, you know, a lane opens, if he's on one side and Hansen, not, not rightly or wrongly, just does his assignment, but his assignment calls for him to go to the other side, and all of a sudden you get this 350-pounder blazing through the middle on a stunt, oh, boy, <laughs> that, could be, that could be pretty rough. So I think they'll do it. I don't think they'll do it anywhere near as much as Washington State did it, 
but yeah, I think you'd be foolish not to try and avoid a little bit more because again, this this Washington, this Arizona defense, excuse me, just isn't very good statistically. It's hard to really put a lot of credence in what they're bringing to the table here, schematically or talent across the board, because you just you just don't see it. Right, right. All right, we'll let you go on this. We know kickoff's coming up. How do you see this one playing out? Ducks, you know, they opened about a nine-and-a-half-point favorite. It looks like that line keeps going down to eight, so some late money coming in on the Wildcats. That aside, James, uh, how do you see this one coming uh, coming to play? I know, and I think part of that, honestly, may, may be just that the dogs have done pretty well today, mm-hmm. um, especially in this league. But as a whole, I, I've kind of felt all week that, Oregon has, let's put it this way, if, if, if either team is going to build a lead and pull away, it's certainly going to be Oregon. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think Arizona has the firepower on either side of the ball to contain this one. Now, if they manage to establish the run and actually take long chunks of possessions, really long drives, which is not really a Kevin Summer stable, by the way, but if they were to do that, hey, look, anything's possible to be competitive. But I felt this was going to be a two or three score kind of game all week. And I think that's where it ends. If it's three, maybe it gets down to two on a late touchdown by Arizona. Trim it down a little bit. But I, I see it somewhere around the 35-18, 35-21 kind of ball game. Lay the points, yeah. James says. Hey, James, it's uh, great to talk to you as always. We'll let you go cover the game, follow you on Twitter, at James Crepia, and uh, we'll try to wrap around with you again in the post game. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. There it is. James Crepia, the Oregonian in Oregon Live. He says, lay the points, Neil. We'll get your score prediction coming up. But, uh, you know, I find it interesting, a lot of late money coming in on Arizona in this game. Well, that's the betters, and he's right about there's been some interesting underdogs winning today Mm -hmm. uh, against the spread and close games, and we got one here, folks. I mean, it's 38-38, Washington State and Stanford. Uh, Washington State has the ball, driving down. In Stanford territory. What do you know? An eight-yard out route. There we go. Where have you seen that before? Gosh, that route's everywhere. All right, we'll wrap it up. We'll come back on the other side. Final segment. We'll get Neil's score prediction, mine as well, matchup preview, and get out of here in time for Ducks Wildcats. Countdown to kickoff. Last segment coming up on the game. You're listening to Countdown to Kickoff, part of Oregon College Game Day with Judah Newby and Neil Lomax. Presented by Frost Brewed Coors Light on 1029 and 750 The Game. All right, final segment. We'll go rapid fire. The matchups that matter on Countdown to Kickoff. I'm Judah Newby, and he's the College Football Hall of Famer, Neil Lomax. Matchups that matter. We'll start with number 10 for the Oregon Ducks, Justin Herbert. He is so good on the road. Only one interception that he's thrown in his Pac-12 road career, Neil. And that came in in his first true start against Cal back in 2016. He's going up against an Arizona defense that has allowed some passing yardage against them this year. And last week against UCLA, Arizona started two true freshmen at cornerback. What do you think of Justin Herbert against the Cats? Yeah, the, the Wildcats got a very average defense. Looking them on film a little bit, some of the notes that you brought up, and looking at the stats all week long. So. Uh, you know, Herbert's just got the numbers, too. What I love about it is he's still at that 171 quarterback rating. I mean, the average Pac-12 quarterback's like 120. The average in the nation is like 132. I mean, he's at 171. He's throwing over 60% of his pass, 63% still, of pass completions. That's impressive. Anything over 60% is amazing. So it's not him. It's defensively, can you shut down the run? I mean, James talked about J.J. Taylor. That, that's the concern, having him run the ball, uh, as well as Gary Brightwell. I mean, J.J. Taylor is a kickoff return guy as well, kickoff return specialist. Yeah, most all-purpose yards in the country. And they got some big boys up front defensively, but it, it's, the, it's the down three for Oregon. 
can Jordan Scott and the boys stop the running game? You do that, because I don't think Khalil Tate's going to be a 100% guy running all over the world here and, and do anything. I, I, I feel that Oregon will control this game. They'll be more efficient. They're coming off this loss that's going to motivate them. I really believe that. They're going to do – it's going to be more than the Dylan Mitchell show. Believe me, they're going to have a lot more receivers catching the ball, and I think the running backs, TBJ might play a lot. I, I see Oregon, again, winning this thing by at least 20. A third down I think will be important as well, and Oregon offensively on third down has been great. Second in the league in third down conversions, 48.6%. They're picking up third down. And when they're not getting third, they're more than likely picking it up on fourth as well. Whereas Arizona defensively, Neil, 10th in the Pac-12 in third down conversions allowed. They're allowing opponents 43.5% of third down conversions. This could be one of those games where Oregon wins time of possession like 36-24 or something like that if they can just keep converting third downs because Arizona gives them up and Oregon gets it done. And and defensively, the, the secondary, uh, Ugo Amati and the boys, D. Lenore, those guys got to stop Sean Poindexter. He's a big boy. Yeah, uh, He's a good receiver. El- Elling- Ellenson's back. Um, Tony Ellison's back. He was our leading receiver last year with over 45 catches. He's only got 19 this year, so he's been a little slowed up a little bit. Uh, but Sean, look for Sean Poindexter is the man they go to. But I, I just think offensively, Oregon's going to dominate this game. They are the better team talent-wise from hash mark to hash mark to numbers to numbers. I got this thing 41-20. 41-20 is uh, Mr. Lomax's prediction for this ball game. I'm going to take the Ducks as well. I'm going to say lay the points too. I'm going to go ahead with 45-20. to 20. Uh, What did what'd you say? <laughs> Well, you, you just say added 20? four more points in Oregon. That's okay. Oh, okay, I'll be you a little bit more different. I'll say uh, I'll go ahead with a 45-17. You can do that. <laughs> I just think they're going to put the ball in the paint and make it happen. Peter Sampson spinning it. What was your call, Peter? What's your prediction on this game? 35-17 Ducks. 35-17 Ducks. So we're all in the, the same. We're saying lay the points. Why is this late money coming in on the Cats, Well, man? I think I did, Nick Aliotti is whispering in my ear, I think. I think he's got he's got Arizona winning this game. We'll just we'll just say that Nick Aliotti called in and said Arizona's going to win. Let's just throw him under the bus. Yeah, yeah of course. Because it, be, <laughs> it would hardly be the first time. He was bragging about his Washington State victory. Hey, he yeah. was fired up. He's always rooting for the Ducks. All right. 503-417-7575 for the post-game show at 1030 or right after final whistle. He's Neil Lomax. I'm Judah Newby. Thanks to Peter Sampson. Thanks to James Crepio. This has been Countdown to Kickoff on 1029 750 The Game. Mm-hmm.